The COVID-19 pandemic has turned our world upside down. Meeting this challenge is bigger than any Australian. From how we work and how we live. Stay at home. Stay at home. Stay at home. Don't travel. To the very basics of human interaction. Keep that social distance. If you're in an enclosed space, you should be wearing a mask. This is a time of total upheaval. It is a test of our nation. If you want this to be over, you've got to follow the rules. For many, 2020 will be the toughest year of our lives. And as we look to life beyond the virus, we ask, so now what? Today, climate change. It's just 12 months ago that a record number of Australians listed it as among the greatest challenges that we face. And it was hardly a surprise, really, because this was amidst the onslaught of last summer's bushfires. And it seemed that even our most reluctant politicians were beginning to be dragged into greater action on tackling the crisis. Do you acknowledge that the bushfires are linked in some way to climate change? Of course I have. I have all year. What I'm saying is that Australia is meeting and beating our emissions reduction targets. Our climate policy settings are to meet and beat our emissions reduction targets. Emissions reduction under our government is 50 million tonnes on average a year less than it was under the previous government. And we want to see the emissions reductions continue in this country and we want to continue to better the achievements we've already made uh, with measures that achieve that. But by March, of course, a new crisis. COVID-19 drove climate from the news cycle. And as the world's industrial centres went into lockdown, carbon emissions across the planet just went into freefall. Now, one very rare positive effect of the past few months has been on the environment. The biggest ever reduction in the volume of carbon dioxide released into the world's atmosphere has been recorded since March. In the first half of this year, emissions fell by almost 9%, with emissions from transport down a whopping 40%. Qantas is to reduce its international flight capacity by 90% and plans to cut domestic services by 60% because of the impact of the coronavirus. Flights have been cancelled en masse. Tiger is suspended completely. Many virgin workers forced to take leave without pay up until the end of May. Nothing brings home the scale of this crisis like seeing the empty freeways and train stations. Millions of Australians are staying at home, waiting for business as usual to return. But then, of course, we start thinking about a world beyond the virus. Can we expect things to bounce back to where they were as far as emissions are concerned? Or even worse than that, what about this concept of revenge emissions, where emissions will rise even higher as people and industries rush to make up for lost time and the lost experiences they've had as a result of lockdown? Or in the alternative, can we capitalise on this global upheaval and take it as a chance to reset? Is it possible that we might lock in any kind of climate benefits that we've had and use one crisis to help overcome what promises to be a much bigger and more enduring one. Our climate future is at a crossroads. COVID-19 must have had some kind of effect. So now what? To help me find some answers to that, I'm joined by a senior advisor to the Climate and Energy College at Melbourne University and also an energy transition specialist, Simon Holmes Court. Simon, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Wally. Uh, and also Bryn O'Brien, who's the Executive Director of the Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility, who is leading the charge on getting business specifically, not just government, business, to take more action on climate. So Bryn will have a lot to say when we get to that. Bryn, thank you as well for your expertise today. Thanks, Wade. I want to begin with this observation of emissions kind of falling dramatically as a result, involuntarily, I think we can say, of the 
pandemic arriving and this prospect of revenge emissions. Bryn, I'll start with you. What are you expecting to see in the aftermath of that kind of lull in emissions? Well, uh, I think we have to be pretty uh, circumspect about what kind of emissions reductions we've already seen. So, you, you know, you have mentioned that transport emissions drop. I mean, we can expect that to go back up again unless there's like massive electric vehicle uptake or we suddenly really don't fly as much and that, that ends up baked into the system. But uh, our electricity use has remained relatively uh, stable. There are plans for not just kind of fossil fuels extraction to continue, but to grow in Australia. So I, I, unless there is real action to, uh, to change our economy in this country, it is difficult to see a long-lasting emissions reduction at the kind of scale that we need. That is very Australian-centric though, isn't it? And climate change is a global problem. Travel, obviously, a, a global phenomenon. I get the sense, and you know, in some ways it was on the margins of society, but you know, when I spoke to people I knew who lived in Europe, the idea of flying had started to become a little bit off. The idea of traveling when you didn't need to had just started to become a little bit morally tainted, if that's not too heavy a language to put. I think that's right. And we've unlocked, a, you know, a huge amount of kind of potential of Zoom conferencing. I know everyone's very Zoom fatigued at the moment, but we have just realised that we don't all have to be in the same place to get things done. So in terms of international business, that is fantastic. But as to whether that is the kind of emissions reduction that we need in order to get our planet onto a, an atmospheric trajectory that is safe, uh, absolutely not. So I suppose, Simon, it's a question of whether or not this becomes a new baseline or a new launch pad or a reset or whatever it is you want to call whatever metaphor you want to use. What do you think is likely to happen? Reset or rebound revenge? As far as Australia's emissions, it's been swings and roundabouts, right? right. So people, uh, we might have used less electricity uh, in, in office spaces, but people just moved that to home. Um, our heavy industry hardly skipped a beat. There's been very little impact on electricity use there. Sure, there were um, fewer people flying around, but we had swings and roundabouts again of people not taking public transport and driving instead. So it'd be a small a small blip in Australia. It's interesting that that discussion around um, that people are starting to become much more aware of their aviation emissions and people are starting to question whether they really need to fly. But just put it into perspective, did some analysis a little while ago and there's a coal-fired power station in New South Wales called Vales Point, one most people have never even heard of. It's, I think, the third biggest coal power station. It emits uh, as much carbon a year as the entire Australian domestic aviation industry. So just to put in perspective, we can all be hand-wringing about whether we should make that one flight or not. But as long as we've got these uh, coal power stations, which is you a know, very easy solution for how we replace them. But uh, you know, just, just keeping things in perspective, one less flight will do a lot less than working together to, um, to push these coal-fired power stations towards earlier retirement. But I wonder whether or not new habits might be engendered that mean that we can expect some kind of depression in the level of emissions from aviation around the world. Yeah, I think we really we, we have we have moved to um, a period, an era where there will be. I, I think there'll be a lot less business travel. I think this is this is going to be playing around at the edges of the emissions problem. The emissions problem is is not really about individual behavioural change. It's, it's the uh, finding new fuels for aviation, finding new ways of generating electricity, decarbonising industry, those kind of things we haven't started on. Certainly we haven't started on in Australia. The big impact out of this 
I think is the rebuilding efforts that are focusing on on capitalizing the need to spend money wisely and investing it in, in decarbonisation. That's where the impact's going to come on our emissions, not behavioural change. Right. So what you're talking about there sounds very government focused or at least government led. And, and that's obviously a massive part of the conversation. And I want to get to that in a second. But there is another element of that that's implicit in what you say, and that's industry, that's business. It f- seems to me that business is kind of stepping into the breach where government is refusing. And you know, I'm thinking of like the, you know, the BlackRock decision at a global level uh, earlier this year. So a huge investment fund that basically has decided to go far greener in the way that it wants to invest, which then has a knock-on effect by setting a trend for investment all over the world. The ANZ's recent decision insisting on certain uh, levels of carbon emission before it will loan to big business. Even the decision from Woolworths that was really recent to go, what was it, net positive carbon emissions by 2050. So that's to say they're going to take more carbon out of the atmosphere. These are interesting examples, Waleed. There is definitely a gap opening up between uh, some quarters of Australian business and the Australian government, and certainly uh, some quarters of international business and the Australian government. And then, you know, in some ways, even if you look at the oil and gas sector, the European oil majors are pretty far out ahead of the Australian and American players in terms of at least talking somewhat more credibly about decarbonisation. But with all of those announcements, except maybe the Woolworths one, that's pretty exciting, I think, given, you know, that there is some scale there. But, you know, BlackRock's announcement around greening some of its investment only applies to its actives, which is about, you know, 1% or less of its of its total investments. It is still, uh, you know, the world's largest passive investor, so index-based investor in fossil fuels. And, the, the you know, the ANZ announcement deals with coal, but it doesn't deal with gas. And, and gas is a really big problem I'm sure we'll come back to in this conversation so it's a bit of a mixed bag, but um, there isn't, there certainly isn't the same kind of boneheaded, we love fossil fuels and we're going to cling to them forever that we hear from Australian politicians coming out of Australian business. No one is as rosy as the Australian government and they're in fantasy land. Coal is good for humanity. Coal is good for prosperity. Coal is an essential part of our economic future here in Australia and right around the world. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't be scared. Treasurer, the treasurer you. knows the rule on crops. It's coal. It was dug up by men and women who work and live in the electorates of those who sit opposite. So we don't say that there shouldn't be any new gas. That's not our position. What we do say, though, is that if you have a proper policy, you'll get uh, the, the market basically is driving change towards renewables. Part of what will fix up Liddell and replace that coal-fired power station is gas, as well as renewables, as well as battery. So there's a lot there to pick up. I, I like the way you've qualified some of these moves from business. <laughs> Can we just talk about the Woolworths one for a moment? Because you've sort of identified that as being genuinely promising. What's interesting to me about that one is that the more I read into it, the less excited I get. <laughs> Not because it's a problem like what they've announced, but because it applies, it seems, to their own operations, but it doesn't have anything to say about the emissions that are produced in delivering the food to them in the first place. So if you're talking about agriculture, which is huge emissions, yeah. really major issue, I think, for particularly a country like ours, that doesn't go into Woolworths' accounting of their carbon neutrality or better. It's merely their own operations. 
This is a fascinating conversation. You know, the way that companies slice and dice their emissions accounting, the way that their PR departments tell that story to their consumers is absolutely fascinating. You know, that's euphemistic. I mean, there is a whole lot of bullshit, frankly, in how companies do this. Woolworths isn't nearly the worst example of it. (laughs) So oil and gas companies, so Woodside, our big uh, Western Australian oil and gas producer, has made some recent announcements about its target setting, you know, targets for emissions reduction. And it will uh, set those targets around its operational emissions in some parts of its business and have no target setting at all about the products that it sells. So its value chain, the kind of core of its business. So there, there are plenty of companies that put out these glossy statements, often backed by major investors, super funds, saying, oh, this is great, this, this company has set this new emissions reduction, reduction target, but it will be uh, packaged up in such a way to avoid the real issue, which is the extraction and burning of fossil fuels for energy. I'm totally with Bryn on that. There's a lot of inconsistency in what these statements mean and you know, what net zero uh, or, or these 100% renewable commitments. We're at the very early stages of being able to say whether someone's commitment is genuine or um, or just send, you know, sending a nice signal. I think this is a part of, I guess, sort of ratcheting towards perfection. We start with these fuzzy commitments, we get them on board, and then people will turn up the screws. And, and the sophistication of the auditing schemes, the sophistication of what people are being um, going to be judged against increases over time. And we're so far ahead of where we were a few years ago, and we can expect that we'll be saying the same thing in 2025, looking back on how embryonic these discussions were in 2020. If you ask a company to um, convince you that it, that it understands its risk of stranded carbon assets, the difference between them laughing you out of the room, which would have happened five years ago, now them telling you that they care about it and they've committed to net zero. Yeah, I guess I'm, on this stuff, I'm, I'm an impatient incrementalist. <laughs> Fair enough. I suspect Bryn isn't from the way that she's framed it. <laughs> Look, I think we've got we've probably got a bit of a disagreement about about net zero by 2050 and and whether that's kind of getting us where we need to be. That that's kind of the favoured target of business at the moment. Even Woodside, you know, the big oil and gas company, has what they call an aspirational target. It's very lovely, an aspirational target of net zero by 2050. Net zero is a you know is an accounting proposition, not a, not an atmospheric physics proposition. So say if we if we accept that uh, 350 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere is where scientists say is kind of around the safe level, we're currently at you know 415 odd. If at 2050 we're at 550 parts per million, and we're at that moment you know taking as much carbon out of the atmosphere as we put in, that's not going to do us much good. So there is a school of thought, and I think Simon is of this school of thought, that net zero by 2050 is how we ratchet, is how we get acceptance of a kind of long-term goal, and then we ratchet from there. There's another school of thought, which I lean to, which is that net zero by 2050 might be a bit of a kind of drug to the brain uh, to numb us from considering the action required by 2030. I think that both of those perspectives are, are probably push and pull between Simon's perspective and mine is constructive at this point. So I should probably just, as a footnote, maybe explain the stranded assets idea. As I understand it, it's this idea that businesses or you know lenders like banks might be worried that they invest in assets like a new coal mine or whatever, and then the world changes around them and suddenly they can't get any value for those. And so they become a massive loss. And the danger of investing in that way puts investors off. And so they end up doing the kinds of things that we've seen you know, ANZ do and say, 
you know, we're going to pull back on some of our fossil fuel lending or our high emissions lending because we're worried about being stuck with assets that are worthless. Is that a fair summary of it, Simon? Yeah, a good example would be the Narrabri gas project that just was announced. To make that project productive, it needs a pipeline, massive pipeline built all the way into the rest of the gas network. And to pay that pipeline off might be, you know, it might take 40 years. And if you're an investor in a bank and the bank's lent money to that pipeline, and then there's a chance that, uh, a very real chance that that pipeline might actually only operate for 10 or 15 years, and then the pipeline operator will go belly up, then the risk that you're going to lose your investment is is too high. And I think um, a lot of the asset owners and, and um, project proponents have still got their, have still yet to get their head around just how quickly this transition's happening and how quickly their assets are going to be useless. Like, is, is it too Pollyanna-ish? to hope that where government has failed, the market, or maybe that's too loaded a term, business, might just step in and do the work for us. That the, the imperatives of profit making in an environment where climate change is just becoming a bigger and bigger issue, in the minds of customers as well as in the minds of business people, might just lead them to reduce emissions because that's just what the market demands. There are certain sections of the market that are kind of moving towards decarbonisation out of enlightened self-interest, but uh, not the sectors that we really have to worry about. The problem for us is that the window of time that we have is closing faster than fossil fuels companies are willing to move. They've got a different kind of a window. They see a window uh, of acceptability of their operations of community and government acceptability of digging fossil fuels out of the ground and selling them to be burned. And they see that window is closing fast and they are doing everything they can to get projects online so that they can do that activity, digging fossil fuels out of the ground and selling them before that window closes. And they are doing everything they can to lobby government to hold that window open. So that's the problem for us. But Simon may have a a more optimistic view. Please, Simon. Please. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. So, so there, there's there are, there are lots of points of light. One area um, I talk a bit a bit about is the, the transition in the electricity sector in Australia is is phenomenal. It's fast and it's accelerating, and it, it's on track to to keep accelerating. We've gone from uh, about eight percent renewables to about twenty eight percent renewables in a decade, and um, the next you know, the next few years also looks looks rosy. We've got more solar panels per household than any country in the world. And uh, yeah, this year has been an absolute bumper year for that sector. But I guess to reinforce Bryn's point, while this is happening, the LNG sector in Australia has expanded to the point where its fugitive emissions are wiping out all that good work. So while, again, like the, the rooftops in Australia, those two and a half million rooftops, two and a half million households that have put solar on the roof, their environmental contribution has been almost entirely wiped out by just one LNG project in Western Australia, the, the Gorgon project by Chevron and Shell. So, yeah, we've, we can focus on the good things, and, and, um, but we've, we've also got to focus on the ones that sadly are, are out of mind and out of sight for most Australians. What role would you say COVID has played in any of this? I think not in Australia. Definitely internationally, we've seen COVID being used you know, all around the world. People people have been thinking, what 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 kind of a COVID recovery are you going to have? And a, a number of countries, in fact, the majority of countries, have found some kind of green recovery. Uh, Australia has rejected that to date, at least at the federal level. Get more gas, more often, and more reliable by resetting our East Coast gas market, unlocking additional gas to drive recovery, paving the way 
ultimately for a world-leading Australian gas hub to support high-wage jobs, including and especially in manufacturing. I think we need to build a coal-fired power station if we want to bring manufacturing back to Australia, especially in somewhere like the Hunter Valley. It's got the world's best thermal coal, so why would you build a gas-fired power station there? Just build a new advanced coal-fired power station. We went to the election promising to build coal-fired power stations in North Queensland. The Nationals Party uh, formed a coalition with Scott Morrison a couple of years ago, the basis that coal would be treated the same as all other energy sources. I don't care what source the dispatchables come from. N none of these, as someone once said, have moral qualities. They're just things that produce energy. There's some evidence that the states are going a different way. But Australia, Australia hasn't done much on this um, green kind of recovery. But our, our trading partners, um, it's a big part of Korea's decision to, to rapidly decarbonise. They've adopted a, a net zero target and they're, and they're adopting an aggressive plan to get there. And you think that's a COVID decision? Absolutely. And we'll see that impacting Australia in a couple of ways. One is, is the change demand for our goods. So Japan, South Korea, China, uh, soon to be Taiwan, are all swearing off Australian coal. And soon it'll be off Australian uh, LNG as well. But also we're, we're, we're soon to be the target of discussions around carbon border adjustment taxes. And those, those schemes only come into being when their countries have made significant efforts, which they're doing on the back of the COVID recoveries. So do you want to explain that tax? So a good example would be Germany. I visited a, a steel mill in the west of Germany this time last year. They've got a project to move from using thermal, so using from metallurgical coal to hydrogen. It's going to be a 20-year process. It's going to cost hundreds of millions uh, of dollars to do so. They're producing steel under a fairly significant carbon tax right now or a carbon trading scheme that's um, around about $40 a tonne of carbon. So their industry is under a lot of pressure to reinvent itself to be low emissions. And they don't want other companies in the European Union to be buying dirty Australian steel or Chinese steel in preference to the steel that they've gone to a lot of effort to yep. decarbonise. Yep. So it's a way of, for them, levelling the playing field and making sure those countries that are not taking action, I guess, have, the, have their playing field tilted back towards those who are. So, Simon, you've taken us headlong into the realm of government then, government policy, government decision-making. So, Brian, I might get your perspective on that aspect of it. Do you think COVID has changed the way governments around the world are thinking about climate change and are responding to it? Absolutely. And in most countries, uh, and certainly in our major trading partners, as Simon says it, governments have used COVID, the opportunity presented by COVID, to accelerate transition. And Australia has gone the other way. The Australian government is using COVID to protect the incumbency or further entrench fossil fuels into our energy and, and export markets. <laughs> there is a COVID story for Australia, and that story is that our trading partners are accelerating transition. So if you think of Australia as a, a vendor, right, as a, as a fossil fuels shop, our current customers are you know, China and Japan and South Korea. And those customers have said that we are not going to be your customers anymore. And the Australian government is still saying, well, we're going to keep the shop open. We're going to keep the shop open and we're going to subsidise the rent for the shop. We're going to hold this space because the customers will come back. Well, frankly, given the nature of the commitments announced by those trading partners in the last couple of months, that shop will close. <laughs> and the tragedy of all of this is that it won't reopen and the people who work there 
we'll need to find new jobs. We just earlier this week we had we had Matt Canavan, Senator Matt Canavan, saying, um, "Shouldn't Australians get a get a say in in when the coal industry finishes?" And <laughs> yeah, the, the quick answer to that is no. We won't get a we won't get a choice. We're we're the vendor, and these uh, these customers have told us that they're going to stop buying it. Yeah. China has dramatically reduced the import of Australian coal, and there's some you know, geopolitical reasons for that. But all of those countries that we mentioned before have committed to using less and less of our coal, and before we know it, it'll be gone. So I think it's worth really drilling down into that point about these other countries not wanting to buy our coal, because I think to a lay observer who's not sort of really enmeshed in this in their day-to-day life or in their work, they just hear competing claims about this. So, they'll, you know, they'll hear China doesn't want to buy our coal, but then it still does. Someone else will say, oh, of course they want to buy our coal. They still are. And here's, you know, the money that they're spending on our coal at the moment and whatever. India was a big argument for a long time. You know, India desperately needs our coal, especially for its poorer populations who need electricity, et cetera. And then you would hear someone from within the Indian government say, we're moving away from coal. So I think there's just a lot of confusion here. And I think it's worth spelling out exactly what we or you mean when you say they don't want our coal. What what does that look like? Okay, we need to differentiate between metallurgical coal and thermal coal. Okay. Metallurgical coal, the coal that is used to make steel. And Australia has a, we dominate the international trade in metallurgical coal. It's uh, extremely high quality. It trades for about three times the price. And it is the majority of the Queensland coal industry. So there's strong demand for that. And we'll see a fair bit of that traded out of Australia until it's replaced by hydrogen. But you know, expect that to happen over the next 20 to 30 years that we start seeing that really dented. So you're saying that has a future? That has a future. It's time limited because we have it still emits a lot of emissions, yep. uh, but there isn't a commercial alternative in the market today. Lots of people are working on it. Okay. Thermal coal? The thermal coal market is, is what we're really talking about. So that's where our trading partners who are currently buying Australian thermal coal to burn for electricity generation. And where they are saying, we are setting these hard targets for ourselves and these are our decarbonisation plans and we're going to be moving our energy grids away from coal-fired power generation. That is the shop that is going to close. And, you know, over time, as renewables become uh, cheaper, the need for Australian gas will will decrease as well. So we will see investors call it like, and corporate people call it demand destruction. We, we will see the destruction of demand for thermal coal and for LNG in the economies of our major trading partners. And so prolonging the life of those industries, you know, subsidising the rent of those shops in Australia is not the way that subsidies should be used. So subsidies or stimulus, and that's the opportunity presented by COVID, this opportunity for massive uncontested political, well, uncontested spending, right? And so the, or the need for spending is uncontested. COVID has presented this very difficult economic challenge. Everyone agrees the government needs to spend money to stimulate the economy. Now, government spending can be an incredibly powerful public policy tool so we need our government to to spend for a green future, for a just future, and currently they are spending to prolong the life of dying industries. It's the thermal coal that will that will go first, and partly because we actually don't we don't represent a large amount of the global demand for for thermal coal. China's got plenty of coal fields. India does as well. India hardly buys any thermal coal from us, and China's opened up significant transport routes so that they don't need our coal anymore. 
Japan uses a, uses a fair bit of Australian coal, but they'll be the first to get rid of it, and that'll be a major impact on the New South Wales coal industry. So what percentage of our coal industry is thermal and metallurgical? It's about 50-50 in, in export, um, about 200 million tonnes of each, and uh, probably 80% of it goes to countries that have committed to net zero by 2050. Right. But you said previously that a good chunk of the metallurgical stuff was based in Queensland, or a good chunk of the Queensland coal, I guess, was metallurgical. Yeah. That, that makes me wonder whether we've been having a really false argument politically about... Oh, absolutely. <laughs> ...about Queensland, because... Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Right, but, but, on, but on both sides of it, right? So mm. you've got the LNP sort of saying, you know, we have to preserve these coal jobs, and then you've got whoever wants to oppose the LNP on that, and I don't know if you put Labor in that camp or not, because it's quite ambiguous in a lot of ways, but you have whoever wants to oppose that saying that these jobs effectively are going to have to transition, they've got no future. But if if they are the metallurgical coal jobs, it seems that they do have quite a future. It might be limited, but they do have a future. They, they do. They do. But, but also the number of jobs, this idea that it's, um, that it's our biggest challenge in the, in the labour force, or at least that's, I think, how it's presented, is nonsense. It's a very small amount of jobs. It's on the order of 50,000 jobs across both sectors. So probably only about half of them are in thermal coal. And they're not going to disappear overnight. They're going to disappear over, let's say, 10 or 15 years. Compare that with, say, the automotive sector, which employed more people and largely disappeared over a three-year period. Compare that against the ebb and flows in the construction market, which is, is more like um, you know, about 1.2 million jobs in Australia. Compare that to the to the 50,000. So it's it's a relatively small number of people and we, we can look after them all as, as a country. Not that we've ever looked after industries or we've ever, ever had so much hand-wringing about a small group, but the transition will be relatively slow and relatively small number of jobs. It's absolutely manageable. Right. So I want to get to just transition in a moment because I think it's a big part of the story. But I suppose my question, Bryn, is why are we talking about Queensland? If Queensland is kind of the bit that does have some kind of economic security, it's the bit of the coal industry that will survive for at least a little longer, then why are we talking about it? I'm confused here. I genuinely don't know. Uh, well, I think it's in the interests of certain of our political representatives for us to keep talking about Queensland. I just hope they'd consider at the next election coming up to Collinsville with a convoy perhaps of cars and, and vehicles and holding a rally there to protest against the, the coal-fired power station there, particularly if they live south of the border, down in Sydney, Melbourne, maybe Tasmania. Please come up to North Queensland and tell us all how we're immoral and corrupt. It would help us a lot. Well, look at this nonsense in the federal parliament. Coal for us in Queensland means jobs. Resources means millions, billions of dollars for the Australian economy. No one behind me got here without travelling in a car or a plane or a bus or a boat, all manufactured from Australian resources. Coal means more jobs and we should continue with the resources industry in this country. 46,000 Australians are going to lose their jobs when you close down the coal mining industry. And they've said, oh, but solar industry and wind will replace it. Well, I've got a little, little story for you here. Solar comes in from overseas. It doesn't provide a single job in Australia. So, uh, you know, I think that that's, that's why in terms of what, why there is a, a Queensland narrative, uh, that's why you've got powerful coal advocates there that are deeply self-interested. No, but I'm thinking of the other side of the equation. I'm, I'm thinking of why is Queensland at a focus even for people who are much more concerned about the climate change side of it? It seems like the focus should be elsewhere. Yeah, well, look, I think mistakes have been made, right? I think buying into that fight, I think it's uh, the environmental movement has, has made plenty of mistakes. 
by uh, yeah buying into that Queensland coal war when Met Coal was a big part of the industry was a mistake. Is a mistake. I think uh, we could be having much more interesting fights. So uh, yeah, I, I I won't justify it. <laughs> totally agree. Yeah, look, I, I think we should have been saying to those coal communities, look, we're not coming after your jobs. Net zero isn't coming after your jobs. Net zero Australia is not coming after your jobs. Your your job will remain secure until Japan, South Korea, China, India go net zero. Oh, by the way, they already are. So it's not happening over a three-year period like the car industry. There are a dozen industries, in, or you could probably name 50 industries in Australia that have employed more people that have collapsed quickly. This one we know is going to happen over 10, 20 years. Mm. So Australia committing to net zero doesn't affect those jobs. It's it's our customers' commitments to net zero that does. So we, we should be helping them now get their head around. The, the decision on whether they've got a job is not made in Canberra. It's made in Seoul and Tokyo and Beijing. I, I should jump in there and just say quickly that the Adani mine, right, if we're talking about Queensland, we're talking about the Adani mine, that is a, that is a thermal coal mine. That is a thermal coal. So that, I think... There is no mistake in doing everything we can to prevent that. So Adani have just changed their name to Bravis and there's a whole funny story about that. But that mine cannot go ahead. It is just totally incompatible with Australia's responsibilities internationally and it is going to be, you know, that the market for that coal is drying up and it is a ridiculous, ridiculous, damaging proposal. So, you know, I think if when you're saying like, I, you know, why are we talking about Queensland? Why are we talking about Adani? Well, we have to talk about that mine. We must talk about that particular big basin of thermal coal. Yeah, but they, they were jobs that, that we were protecting jobs that didn't even exist in that debate. Let's talk about just transition. The bit that's missing, it seems to me, in the way that public argument goes is linking the jobs that are going to be created to the jobs that people feel are being threatened. That is. It is you who will lose jobs out of this transition that will get the new jobs, not just that the jobs will be created for someone in another part of the country who already has a job to take if they want it. Linking the two yeah. jobs. So, well, transitions don't work that way. I mean, one, of, one of the greatest examples of, of, of a transition brought to my attention recently was 2005, not that long ago. If you wanted a photo, you'd take it on your film camera and you'd pop down to a one-hour photo place. Every supermarket or um, shopping centre in Australia had a one-hour photo booth. You'd give them your film, you'd come back, you'd get your double prints. That's how we did our photos. Three years later, everyone's got digital cameras on there phone and that entire industry just evaporated overnight right there were no there were no protests there was no just transition discussion on what happened to them Uh, the same with um, tram conductors in melbourne or electricity meter readers or uh you know garbage trucks used to have four guys on the back of them they've only got one now what about the supermarket checkout people Our, our labor force is dramatically changing all the time in the 1850s, every second person was a farmer, and then we invented the combine harvester. And I think something like 149 out of 150 farmers were laid off by that event. And we're not all sitting around as unemployed farmers. These transitions happen all the time, but we're only focusing on these cold jobs because of the politics of it. Yes, they are important, but there are... Um, how many people did Qantas lay off during this transition that it's going to take a long time to come back? Or the, or the car industry? Why, why are these jobs protected species? Isn't, well, isn't part of the reason for that the way that they're distributed geographically? So that where you have you know, towns that are built on this, and I accept there, there are some car manufacturing parallels in this context, but where, with the coal stuff, you're talking about communities 
Western Australia is full of mines that were once thriving towns and you know, a boardroom decision uh, empties those towns out in a matter of weeks. That's the mining sector. Exactly. And that, that, but that's what makes it different from other sectors, right? And so that, what I'm trying to raise here is unless you have a conversation or a plan that speaks directly to that community, those people, about what the transition means for them and where they will land, you just have to expect that it's going to play out like this, don't you? And this is why governments and subsidies are really important, right? Like, and this is why in the, the recently announced New South Wales plan, there's a big focus on the hunter. I mean, I agree the, the regions are vitally important. I'm from a regional area, uh, from the Illawarra. People need jobs in the regions, absolutely. But this is where government spending should be at the moment. And, it, and it's being used to prop up extractives. It should be being used to generate clean tech industries or other industries in the regions. A, a good example in, in Victoria, we had in, in, in end of 2016, Onji, uh, the French energy company, announced they were closing Hazelwood, the Hazelwood power station, which is famous, and they only gave, was it five months notice? So a big shock to that community. Uh, it was a very big part of the employment in that area and almost no notice. The state government with federal support set up the Latrobe Valley Authority and it was dedicated to ensuring a just transition for those for those workers. So a number were close to retirement and took that option, a number retrained, a number left the area, quite a few were placed in similar jobs in the sector. And one of the things the state government did is they uh, encouraged a electric vehicle manufacturer to move to Morwell, a company that makes electric um, dump trucks and commercial vehicles. And there's a greater diversification uh, in that economy than there was a little while ago. But there will be some towns that, that are so, I guess, so dependent on, on coal that it's going, to be, it's going to be a challenge to restructure those as, as people stop buying their product. Remember, people are going to, they're not going to stop buying the product because we decide. They're going to stop buying the product because our customers have decided. And we have, we have a template in Victoria with the Latrobe Valley Authority. There needs to be a Hunter Valley Authority. And there's going to need to be a Bowen Valley Authority and, and all around the country in, in making sure we have these transitions. We haven't done it well before in Australia with, with other industries, but here's a chance to get it right. And, you know, it's not such a big problem. It's 50,000 people. We've got two paths forward. There's, there's a uh, chaotic disruption or there's a managed transition. And they both start in the same place where we are now and they both end in the same place and we know what that looks like. But one of them, the chaotic disruption, people are going to get hurt. And the managed transition path, we can make sure that we manage prices, we manage employment, we help communities transition. So we can take this managed transition path or we can just let things go into the chaotic disruption, which unfortunately uh, seems to be the path that it's the default path if you don't accept the reality. We've focused very heavily on Australia and Australia's transition here, which is natural because we're Australian. As far as the planet's concerned, it's not really the main game though, is it? I mean, it's true we have very high per capita emissions. I'm not saying we have no role to play, but just our relative size means that what we do doesn't make the difference as far as what the climate will end up doing. If you erase all national borders and just look at the direction of motion here, as far as the planet is concerned, do you see enough movement in the right direction? probably spurred along by the impact of COVID to give you any hope that we're going to get there? No, <laughs> the, the evidence is, is no, we're not, we're not even close. So I think the current government pledges uh, and the current kind of company pre pledges around decarbonisation out there in the world 
come out at around the same place, which is three and a half to four degrees by uh, the end of the century. So that is terrifying. We're nowhere near there. The science says we are nowhere near it. We need much more dramatic action. We need much more assertive action. And, And COVID has proven that we can do it, that we actually can, certainly in Australia, we can take very assertive action to deal with a massive threat and we can win. There is no vaccine for climate change. We need to totally transform our economies and the window in which we can do it is closing faster than almost any of us realise. I think there is enormous there is enormous change happening in the electricity sector, but it is not happening nearly fast enough. Uh, internationally, I see, I see it like the, yeah, the global emissions economy is, is like a massive oil tanker and, and we're, we're heading towards the reef and we, we need to steer it away from, from that danger. And we are starting to steer it and it is starting to turn. But if on our current trajectory, we're still going to hit the reef. I am buoyed and don't, you know, I hope I don't get accused of Pollyanna-ing here. But um, <laughs> compared with where we were a few years ago, we, we are so much further ahead. And if we can continue, I guess, sort of the exponential improvement in the way we think about this and the way uh, we move other sectors the same way we've started moving the electricity sector, then there's still a window. There's still a safe passage mm. out through, through this reef. But we, we haven't found it yet and we can't stop. Um, well, I haven't mentioned the US at all in this conversation. Of course, there's been, we assume there will be a change of government <laughs> depending on how the American processes play out by January 20. I wonder though how much A, does who the US president is matter and B, is it reliable anyway? Because you know I can easily foresee a scenario where Donald Trump runs again in 2024 and potentially wins or the Republicans find some other version of a similar sort of thing and that person wins. The idea that Biden suddenly resets everything strikes me as potentially naive. Is that a major factor for us, do you think? Call, call me naive. Um, <laughs> no, I think it, it does make a huge difference to the way that the international treaties work when you have the US and its helpers like Australia undermining the consensus, undermining progress. When they come around and we're all pulling together in the same directions, things can move very fast. So I think even even uh, you know, in that worst case scenario you mentioned, a lot will happen, a lot can happen in, in the next four years. So maybe if you draw the link behind, between COVID and, and Trump's mishandling of COVID and the change of presidency, maybe we can say, you know, I'd, I'd say that probably the biggest climate impact of COVID has been changing the leadership in the US. That's <laughs> not where I expected to end up. Brynn, is there anything you wanted to add on that before we do the watching brief? Look, I think um, the the difference between uh, another Trump term and a, a Biden term is a chance. Under Trump, I, I think we, we were rapidly, we were approaching the point where we don't have a chance of turning this around, where we're hitting too many planetary tipping points and where we don't have the, the, the might of the United States and the, the huge kind of impact of uh, US headquartered corporations constrained. I think we have a chance at that now. I don't know that we can be very optimistic about our chance of success. Um, and there's certainly a lot to fight for, but there is a chance and we we have to take it. There, there's no alternative. All right, let's get you watching brief. Bryn, start with you. Look, I think one of the, the core issues uh, for Australia is uh, justice for First Nations people. Now, climate change, capitalism and colonisation are all intertwined things. 
what we are starting to see um, is we are seeing First Nations people in Australia that have ownership of land, traditional ownership, custodianship, native title over land, taking power back into their own communities. I think in the wake of the uh, Rio Tinto's destruction of Duke and Gorge in, in the Pilbara, the private sector and in particular the investment sector is listening more to the wishes of First Nations people. So we've seen in the last few months traditional owners up in the Northern Territory in one of those key basins that companies, are, including Origin Energy, are looking at opening up for new fracking activity. We've seen traditional owners of that land start to take back power, uh, legal power, in relation to activity that happens on that land. So, you know, that's the the watching brief for me. I think, you know, it's obvious that we need to uh, listen more to First Nations leadership in this country, and we, we should absolutely just be doing more of that. I don't normally do follow-ups on the f- watching brief, but it's <laughs> such an interesting idea. I just want to ask one question. Does that have a genuine climate impact, though? I mean, or, or does it just allow these mining operations or these fossil fuel operations just to find a better place to blow stuff up and then dig. Do you know what I mean? Overall, does it change the output? Overall, I think First Nations communities around Australia, are, um, you know, the, the objective is self-determination and I'm not certainly not going to stand in the way of, uh, of self-determination. But, you know, I, I think certainly in, in the uh, Beedaloo Basin example out in the Northern Territory, traditional owners uh, have been saying to uh, Origin Energy that plans to undertake expansion out there that they don't want that fossil fuels expansion on their land. So, you know, sometimes the, uh, you know, self-determination, the interests of Aboriginal people will be aligned with with decarbonisation. And certainly there is huge leadership around the world from from First Nations people on climate change. Um, They're often on the front lines, not only of climate change, but of dealing with the companies that cause it. So, you know, I, I just think that those, yeah, that capitalism, colonisation and climate change, especially in this country, are so interrelated that undoing or, or working out how to deal with climate change involves some undoing of colonisation. And that's a, you know, that's a reckoning this country is long overdue to have. And, uh, you know, maybe we're getting closer to that. I'm trying to figure out if that makes responding to climate change simpler or far more complex. I have to go away and have a think about that. <laughs> Simon, your watching brief? I think um, probably the most vapid three-word slogan I've heard in the last decade in Australian politics is gas-led recovery. No one really knows what it means. No one's done any analysis on it. No one's actually defined how it would work. But that's starting to change. The Grattan Institute released a uh, major report on this by the time this goes to air and the um, energy market operator, the Australian energy market operator, is going to start looking at the impact of more gas in the electricity system. And I'm pretty sure it's going to be exposed as just empty rhetoric as soon as we start defining out what it means. But so far, the government's really committed very little to it. It's been a lot of, lot of words. There was nothing in the um, federal budget of any significance on it. And I think events have over, overtaken it. We've seen um, New South Wales government has, has committed to a very aggressive decarbonisation plan through um, in their electricity sector. And, and the Victorian state budget is going to have some surprises for everyone there that I think are going to be quite positive. So I think this is going to fade very much into the background, this gas-led recovery three-word slogan. Don't you love it when you get the sense you're talking to someone who's read all the stuff before it gets released? Like you get the inside word <laughs> on all this sort of thing. You know, they looked inside the envelope for the gold logie before everyone knew that the logies was happening, all that sort of stuff. Simon, Bryn, thank you very much. I've learned so much speaking to you and I'm, I'm sure our listeners have too. So thank you. Thanks, Wally. Thank you. 
Professor and the Hack, accessible politics with just a touch of depth. I'm Hugh Rimmington. And I'm Peter Van Onselen. You can find us, The Professor and the Hack, wherever you find quality podcasts.